Hi, and welcome to Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly radio program about finance, money and investing on Radio Northern Beaches and broadcast nationally on the community radio network around Australia. I'm your host, Ray Treveson from OTG Capital, and today we're welcoming back to the microphone Jonathan Elkham from El... Uh, Elgen Estate Planning. I keep getting your your, your your surname and your your company name mixed around a little bit. Sorry about that, Jonathan. And Jonathan is an estate planning specialist, and we've had Jonathan on the program before talking about, uh, I guess, estate planning 1.01. And Jonathan, I've asked you back on the show because as a result of that last discussion we've had, we've had a lot of good feedback uh, from the broadcast and people sort of going, hey, that's great, but you know, I've been chosen as an executor for a while. Because remember, I said at the last program, you know, what's a really good thing, you know, what's a good takeaway? I always like to leave a good takeaway for our listeners. And so, you know, that that first step of picking somebody that you can trust. And my wife and I have actually been talking about this uh, because we're at this interesting phase of our lives where we actually need to do a little bit of planning. Uh, I mean, we're not planning on departing the mortal coil any moment soon, but I think, uh, as you rightly said in the last show, you know, you need to be prepared. So we're just having that conversation about who we can trust. So today we're going to be talking about executors of wills. So welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Ray. Pleasure to be here again. Wonderful. So look, after my big spiel and and opening, I I guess one of the aspects of being an executor and and doing some background reading on this, it it really shouldn't come as a surprise to somebody if with the passing of somebody that all of a sudden they're informed at that that moment. Uh, Hi, you're the executor of this person's will. It, It shouldn't be a surprise, should it? Absolutely not. And in 99% of times, it's not a surprise because generally the person that um, is responsible as the executor was informed at the stage of creating the will. Now, in New South Wales, it's you do not need to inform your executors. You can just simply nominate them and include it in your will, but they also have the right of refusal. Yeah, and, and I must say, one of the things, given that this show is broadcast nationally through a community radio network around Australia, what we're going to be talking about and some of the reference material I'm uh, using today, ladies and gentlemen, is New South Wales based. So one of the things that we would certainly recommend is that if you need to go to your state government websites, because every state has different probate and will law. Isn't that right, Jonathan? They have different succession laws and they have different ways of doing probate. But your will, your your will is covered for the whole of Australia, all territories and states. So it's not like the powers of attorney during guardians, which is state-based, based on your residency. A will is Australia-wide. Okay, so that's well worth knowing. So I guess let's start with the basics. You know, what is your role? So if you are selected as an executor for somebody's will, what is the role of that person as an executor? What are they supposed to do? That is a huge question. And that would probably take up the next couple of hours of, 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 of radio programming. So if I can break it down into a few things, it's, it's the basics is you are responsible once this person deceases for basically everything that's required in order so that that person's intentions are covered off, their uh, funeral has occurred, their assets are being distributed. And, and this could take five or ten years. Okay. so Five or you, ten years? especially if, it, if the will is contested. So if there's a will contesting issue, 
then it will just keep going and going. So do not think that this could be an easy process. It can be very easy, yes. So I've assisted some executors and the probate as that executorship, not so much the funeral, but the executorship aspect of it and the probate, because it's passing from one spouse to another spouse, has been really easy. You know, everything was left to the, the spouse and so it's just a matter of transferring a few things, closing down a few things and it's five to 10 hours, Yeah, But other matters I'm involved in, they've been going for two, three years. I'm doing a case at the moment, assisting a case at the moment where the person deceased three years ago and we're still working with the NAB bank in terms of uh, passing on the um, assets that person had with the NAB bank to the person's estate. Wow. Okay. I guess so. I guess one of the the aspects then, and you know, my wife and I have been talking about this, is that it's not just about selecting anybody. And I guess within the confines and context of our discussion, where it's somebody that you trust, but I guess when you look at the list of responsibilities of what they're being asked to do, I think one of the key elements also is they need to be, I guess, somebody that's trustworthy and capable, wouldn't you say? Are you referring to the case where you are the executor for somebody or are you referring to the when you're choosing an executor? Well, when you're choosing an executor, I mean, somebody that is of limited I guess, educational capabilities. And I am i don't like to use the word dumb. It's not necessarily the case. It's that not everybody has an affinity to be able to cope and deal with uh, aspects of this nature. So they may be perfectly academically uh, qualified or, or suitable, but then from a mental health care or a, a, you know, a, a, an overall perspective, they may look at this and just go, hey, I really don't want to be involved in this. And and some of the aspects, for example, getting involved in families, if they're feuding, for example, um, and nothing brings out the worst in families than money, <laughs> so, especially when they're when they're divvying up the, the the pie of 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 an estate and they're picking over the bones dare i say it they literally are picking over the bones of their of their dead relative to to then decide what to do with the the goods and chattels it, it can be pretty traumatic can't it absolutely and and this comes back to when you are asked to be an executor so let's go back a little bit and say okay let's say you and your wife have decided on a couple of people yeah and you approach them in that regard yeah. So mm -hmm. those qualities that you are looking for would be organizational skills. Yeah. Being able to follow your intentions and be able to engage professionals to assist. So if you've got a complicated asset base or wealth in terms of superannuation, et cetera, checking to make sure they've got a financial planner and is that financial planner sort of part of the team, making sure if they have an accountant, the accountant is also part of the team. Those sort of things are important to know because from that aspect, yeah, okay, so let's just use Dave as an example. Dave has a complicated asset base, three or four businesses, self-managed super fund, et cetera. When you go to executive for him, if you think, oh, I don't know his financial planner, I don't know his accountant, I'd be hesitant to say, well, here you are, you're up for hundreds and hundreds of hours, yep, especially if he was to decease early. As where if you know he's got a financial planner, you know he's got an accountant, then you're more comfortable doing that. So if you're choosing the person, you should know it on your asset base, how complicated your life is, family matters. So if you come from a blended family, you might decide to do two executives, one from each spouse, yeah, in order to be able to assist the process and make it fairer. And then there comes the aspect so you can of, have, So you can put more than two, more than one person into this role then, is that right? 
only choose one executor and no second executor or substitute executors, then you're writing a limited will. That will, will most likely need to be updated and you've got a high probability that that would then be looked after by the state. They'll then put their own executor in and they will then charge exorbitant rates of being a professional executor. So it's highly risky to do that. So I would recommend that you have at least four or five people in mind. You list one or two as your executor and two to three as your substitute executors. So I, I guess once you've just made up your mind, I guess, in your own head that you said to yourself, and, and is it fair to assume with married couples that the executor is usually the other spouse? Is that a reasonable expectation? Oh, that's a very good question. I personally, this is my personal belief, that if you've deceased, do you really want to dump that onto the person that loves you most and is dealing with your grief more than anybody else? I find it's it. a good question. It's a good question. But again, I, I ask myself, you know, whom do I, excuse me, <clears throat> whom do I trust the most in the world? And I'd say without a shadow of doubt, it's my wife. And so whilst you've got to, I guess, take on board that, that there is a grieving process, <clears throat> particularly if it's a sudden death, uh, I'm also of the view, though, that that person is also the best person to handle, I, I guess, matters going forward. I think if you were to estrange or, or provide some distance between your loved one and the principal assets that potentially could keep him or her, you know, in good stead for the rest of their lives, I'm I'm a little reluctant and so I'm a bit torn. That's why I asked the question whether it's a, a, a given that it should be the spouse or not. So that that's the only reason I ask that. Yeah, so 90, I'll make up a number here, but let's go 95%, 96%, it is always the spouse, yep, as the first executor. And then in that, and then when I talk to my clients or I talk to people generally about this, I would then recommend that they add a second and a third, yep. So so you mentioned before, and I want to pick up on this this string of conversation, you mentioned about a team. So, for example, in a husband-wife situation where, uh, let's say, the husband departs the mortal coil, the wife is the executor, I guess one would hopefully assume that, you know, there's a relationship there between the spouse and, say, a planner, an accountant and, and the like. So she could then potentially bring those people in as part of her team to then manage this process of, and you talked about it before where you said it it's, can be reasonably simple, uh, five, 10 hours of, of work and it's done. Is that the kind of thing that you've seen in the past given your experience? No, the majority of it, it is not organised, it's not planned. And generally the financial planner only has a relationship with one of the parties. They generally don't oh. have a relationship with both parties. Um, I haven't met a financial planner that says that the majority of their clients, they have a good relationship with both. Um, I, oh, I've not okay. met thousands <laughs> okay. of financial planners, but the ones I've generally spoken to, they have a relationship, a good relationship with one. Wow. Okay. And dare I suggest, given the generational elements of, you know, what boomers and older are, it's predominantly men then. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the other point I was going to add to that is they have generally no relationship with the children. Oh, and that's going to get uh, going to get hairy too, isn't it? Absolutely. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. So, look, we're just about time for a bit of a break here on Dollars and Making Sense. This is a fascinating conversation, I've got to say, Jonathan. Uh, look, we're here on Dollars and Making Sense uh, here on Radio Northern Beaches and the Community Radio Network. I'm with Jonathan Elkham from uh, LGEN Estate Planning. We're going to go for a short break and be back in just a moment. Hi, and thank you for listening to Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly radio program about finance, money and investing on Radio Northern Beaches and nationally on the community radio network around Australia. The views, comments and opinions aired during our program should not be construed or viewed as financial advice. Any commentary is general advice only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should consider whether the advice is suitable for you and your personal circumstances. If in doubt, you should contact an authorised licensed financial planner. We welcome questions and feedback and you can get in touch with us via our blog, social media channels or email. Please search for Dollars and Making Sense in your favourite podcast platform or check out our blog at otgcapital.com.au forward slash blog. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly program about money, finance and investing. I'm your host, Ray Treveson, and today I have Jonathan Elkham from Elgen Estate Planning, and we are talking about what you need to do as an executor of a will. Now, before we went to the break, we got to that, uh, I guess, that anxious point where you are selected as an executor. So what I want to talk about now, Jonathan, is let's take a, a case. So Wendy is an executor of, of a will. That person that she's the executrix for has passed away. So what's the first things that she's going to need to do? Yeah, it, it is always the funeral. It, it the funeral occurs first, understanding where the body is, what's going on with the body, and, and who is it. So if you think a bit of a car accident or, or, or an accident that somebody's in a hospital, then dealing with those, those organisations, if it's in a nursing home, dealing with the nursing home, the nursing home will have their own processes. So it depends where the person deceased and how. Um, there is more complicated matters if it's interstate, overseas, but let's not really go into that. But it's understanding the body, uh, where the body is, and that and then digging through the funeral intentions and working out the funeral intentions and of course the next of kin so let's just assume if we can that wendy is one of the siblings of the person is that a good mm -hmm. that work? yeah yeah just it's just a you know for discussion purposes yeah okay let's say wendy is one of the person's children and let's say the previous spouse had deceased and he is a separation, so a blended family, and they've got two to three other siblings as well. So it's a matter of getting those those five or six kids together, adult children together, and then having a quick conversation about, does anyone know what mum's intentions were or dad's intentions were? Um, hopefully, conversations occurred previously about this, but I was in, in a matter yesterday, and they weren't sure it is, but it was clearly in the will. Um, so reading through those documents again then gives you the idea of where it's so really getting that understanding if you're not intentions. Okay, so that's a good place to start. Now, I, I guess at a funeral, it's one of those, you know, my mum passed about a year ago now, and it's not really the kind of occasion where you want to have that kind of nitty gritty kind of conversation. So I guess with the funeral arrangements done and the person interned or uh, cremated, I guess, um, is there a normal time frame? I, I guess everyone's different, but is there a suggestion that you make to people as executors to say, okay, don't let it linger for too long but you then need to get into the nitty-gritty of being the executor or the executrix 
Yeah, absolutely. So it depends on the person's situation. So if it's a young person, or when I say young, I'm more talking 30s and 40s nowadays, uh, where they have responsibilities. Well, that that, that like sounds that. young to me. <laughs> <laughs> so if they've got responsibilities of a business, um, maybe they've got uh, young children or children in some responsibility, then they need to be dealt with straight away. And you as the executor have the authority to get in there. Yeah, if staff need to be paid, if the business needs to continue. So if looking at the asset base of somebody, if they've got a business that's progressing, it's a matter of getting in their ASAP before the funeral, okay? Let's just say that they don't in this situation, they've retired, yep, which is generally the case, and it's then mm -hmm. a matter of, yeah, I'd leave it for a few weeks. You've obviously got bills to pay. So generally, the funeral company will give you the bill at the funeral. It's one of the most disgusting things I ever see. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really annoys me that they do it, but they hand the invoice across at the funeral to the executor. They want to know who the executor is before the funeral goes ahead, so they know they're getting paid. It is it is one of those things. Um, let's hope the industry more changes. Annoying, when, when, my, when my father passed away, they spelled his name wrong on the casket, and I, I, I didn't note, I didn't make a note to the rest of my family. I just brought the funeral home over and, and pointed out that to them, and I said, I'm expecting to see a deduction off the bill when it comes through, so I'm not paying for that. <laughs> they were very red-faced. I was just cranky, but it's just one of those funny things I laugh about now because it's, you know, so long ago. Okay, so funeral's over. We've got people together now. So what are some of the key considerations? You've talked about uh, an operating business, so that's one facet. Um, what are some other facets that an executor needs to start thinking about? Yeah, so really, if there is any instance where there's going to be a gap between probate has occurred or probate will be finished and anybody that might be financially dependent upon the deceased. So making sure ah, yes. that there is cash available for that and, and dealing with those immediate cash issues okay so generally somebody needs to make a loan to the estate because it's generally not sought after it's generally not been looked after and a lot of cases somebody might be looking after uh, their own finances and if they decease they haven't put in that that gap between three to six months yeah of cash available for any financial responsibilities they have yeah, I think that's a real consideration because, again, reading some of the background on on uh, the New South Wales government website about this, you know, they, they've got to stump up cash and sometimes they may not necessarily get their hands on the estate straight away. So they may end up dipping into, dipping into their own pockets, which they then need to be reimbursed. And, and again, when you are picking over the bones of, of a deceased, people start getting very finicky about even the most trivial of amounts. And so I guess one of the key things for an executor is to make sure they document everything they're doing so that they are properly reimbursed. <clears throat> and, and again, we've got to always consider the context. This is a highly charged and very emotional time for people because somebody has passed. It's not something that happens every day. And, and I guess one of those facets is ensuring that you don't get left out of pocket unfairly. So we, we've done the funeral, we've got the people together, we've started paying people, we're looking at cash flow. So I guess there are times now, I mean, is there a time limit again? And, and I'm, I'm thinking about the passage of time because when somebody passes, not everybody is availed, you know, newspapers and the way that I remember you know, death notices being done is rather different these days. And so not everybody necessarily knows that somebody's passed. It may be on Facebook, for example, but even digital assets need to be taken into consideration. And I guess this 
creepy thing about somebody coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, I want to I want a piece of the action, please. How often do you come across that in your day to day travels, Jonathan? From a point of view of during our will preparation, it comes out all the time that X, Y, Z could come through. This could occur. This could occur. I've been in a meeting, done it with the uh, the, the couple, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of the parties says, hey, look, uh, can we have a, just a five-minute catch-up just to go back through everything? I just want to sort of make sure everything's right. Said, yeah, no problem. So I do that. Have a one-on-one with them. And the person says, hey, by the way, I've got this many kids from somewhere else. I've got this something else. I've got these assets. Oh, and that the other person doesn't know about. I don't know if they don't know about them or not. The person has asked to have a one-to-one with me just to to, to, to share these factors. Um, and so I need to then take that into account of the will. So if it occurs in the will-making process, then it generally will occur uh, in the executorship. Wow. I mean, uh, again, just as a as a rough rule of thumb, do you, how many times do you get surprised? Uh, you know, when everything's done, dusted, the person's passed away, you're dusting off the will and actually reading the will, and all of a sudden, you know, totally out of left field, something comes in and says, "Ha ha, it's not going to be easy." How often does that happen, or are we talking fairly straightforward, sort of ninety, ninety-five times out of a hundred? Is that the kind of numbers we're talking about? Yeah, it's a good question. So the rate of it is increasing. So contesting wills is becoming a bigger and bigger issue as the estates are getting bigger and bigger. Yep. So as property values increase, as the person's estate increases in values, more people are putting their hands up in some way that I should be getting something. And it really then comes down to how well the paperwork is done in terms of whether they're entitled to something or not. I have to admit, uh, Mia Culpa here as well, because given when my mum passed on, she had a, a modest home in the southern suburbs of Canberra that 20 years ago you wouldn't blink an eyelid at and say, yeah. But all of a sudden, uh, Canberra real estate went through the roof and all of a sudden we were talking about a substantial asset that everybody started looking sideways and, and started having uh, kind of discussions I don't think that would have occurred 20 years ago. So I think that that element of real estate becoming such a fundamental element of the intergenerational transfer of, of wealth, it, it becomes a big factor. Um, you, we've talked about blended families quite a lot. Um, can you make comment on the kind of rights that blended families do or don't have? Or is that something that as a will maker, you can, I, I guess, uh, dominate or I, I guess exert your will over your family and extended family uh, easily or is that something that gets thrashed out in courts as well? The contested family very much gets thrashed out in courts a lot and that's generally when the uh, deceased and their former partner have not spoken, have not written down their intention of conveyed it. So if we look at back at Wendy, when that Wendy has now brought all the siblings together from the two families, mm. et cetera, right? And one would say, oh, yeah, uh, dad told me this, mum told me this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And then you've got the will in front of you and that's not what's in the will. Yeah. And that then creates, starts to create the issue. Oh, but dad said this. Dad said that when your mother passed that that beach house that we had as kids were growing up would pass to my side of the family, not yours. And, well, well, your dad deceased first, mum second, and mum's will, it says that it's only going to her children. You know, those sort of things always crop up. Uh, and wow. that's where the issues then come about. So it's generally in that aspect where they all get together and they start to digest what's actually in the will 
a lot of people do not share their wills prior to the CSEC. It's still a it's still a, an issue, um, but the earlier you share, the better it is. So, look, we just in wrapping up, I, I guess some of the things that you need to be aware of as, as an executor is it does take time, and you've mentioned potentially hundreds of hours. Um, the person has to have an ability to understand the legal and financial requirements, and there is a possibility that they may end up taking on uh, financial and personal liabilities when they be when they become a, an executor. So, I guess the last thing I'd like to really ask you is that if somebody is nominated and they simply say, "You know what? I don't want to do this," can they do that? Absolutely, and and it's not just a question of being nominated. It's a question you might be written into the well, and so that is your role. You can still turn it down. So you don't okay. have to be an executor, even if you're listed as an executor. And that's why we go back to the aspect of in your will, adding three or four people as substitutes, so that if those have either predeceased or are unwilling or, un or incapable of doing it, that you have that backup, because you definitely do not want it to go to the state trustee. Well, that was my, my you know option of last resort, because the website says, hey, if all else fails, you can come to us. But it sounds like that sounds a, a very expensive option because if anything uh, to go by, certainly in New South Wales, they've probably outsourced that to the private sector and is chucking a bit of a, an impost on top of that. Is that right? So it's a revenue-making uh, scheme because obviously a lot of yeah, it they I then bet. keep. So they've got tens yeah. of billions of dollars that they're managing. So in effect, it is it is more in the coffers for the government. Wow. I would never have thought that being a revenue-raising kind of exercise, but it, it's an opportunity. Look, I, I remember when I was in the forces, we used to see these people come around and say to soldiers, uh, look, you know, here's, here's a will. He, you know, we'll do a will for free for you. Um, but they didn't read the fine print because down the bottom, uh, the, the people that were appointed executors and trustees, um, they they didn't come cheap, <laughs> and so they found out much to their chagrin later on that uh, if they uh, occasionally came through a, an early death, uh, they were rubbing their hands with glee because there's a lot of money to be made. So, look, Jonathan, I'm going to invite you back on the show again because you know there's some really good topics that we still haven't covered yet, and and I think part of the, this process and having gone through it recently myself, the next particular subject I'd like to talk to you about is contesting a will because I think it's something that people want to ask questions about but do so in a safe environment without necessarily raising the hackles of their family and then their family never ever talking to them again as a result of yeah maybe some very innocent in inquiries so look um, thank you for being on the show and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to Dollars and Making Sense, a weekly program about finance, money and investing. You're on the Community Radio Network and Radio Northern Beaches. We welcome comments and feedback on our normal channels. Jonathan, always a pleasure to have you on the show and thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ray. I look forward to discussing contesting wills because it all comes down to your preparation. <laughs> the, the PPPs. Okay. Yep. Thanks so kindly for your time. Adios. Adios.